Hello, I'm Father Gregory Pine, a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, delighted to join you for this most recent installment of Off-Campus Conversations, where we follow up with a Thomistic Institute speaker uh, who will have given a lecture either on campus or in the setting of a retreat or a conference. So that way we can chase down some of the insights, maybe deepen them, um, at the very least open up new vistas, new opportunities for contemplating the divine truth and its application in all sorts of cool circumstances. So for this episode of Off-Campus Conversations, very delighted to be joined by Father Andrew Hofer. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Father Gregory. All right. So uh, many of the folks who listen to the Tomisk Institute podcast will know you through your lectures on the podcast. I think one of the first ones that I listened to of yours was a, a double talk that you gave at New York University as part of that Wisdom of Aquinas series, which I profited from very much. But you've, you've given many lectures on campus and then in conferences and retreats. But for those who don't know you, would you just say a word of introduction? So I'm a Dominican friar of the province of St. Joseph, and I live in Washington, D.C. at St. Dominic Priory. I teach at the Pontifical Faculty of the Dominican House of Studies, where I'm uh, also the editor of the, our journal, The Thomist. Okay, wonderful. Uh, so this would be a little behind-the-scenes moment for you listeners and viewers. Father Andrew and I are currently somewhere between, I don't know, 75 and 125 feet apart on different floors of our same priory. So <laughs> with the wonders of modern technology, it often works better to record in your own isolatable space. So cheers to you, editor of this track. It is for you that we have isolated ourselves. Um, but we're following up on a lecture that you gave at West Virginia University, uh, which treated the themes of the incarnation and the love, which is present in or which motivates the incarnation. So I thought we could just follow up with some of the insights that you described in the course of that talk. Um, one of the first was you describe a kind of analogy of love. So you're trying to distinguish between human love and our experience of it and divine love and our entry into it or our suffering of it to speak maybe perhaps a little bit more dramatically there. Um, and and you, you kind of noted like the need piece present in, in human affection and in human love and that the abundance, which is more characteristic of the divine love. So I was thinking that maybe we could just chase down some of those insights by appealing to the resources that you have in mind there. Can you speak a little more to that? Sure, thanks. So sometimes we get confused about our needs and our loves. Sometimes when someone says, I need you, that person may hear, I love you. Or when the person hears, I love you, that it may mean, I need you. So in human relationships, things are complicated by needs and loves. But you can sort it out when you think something about uh, re human relationships that are radically having different people involved. So that like a little baby. Uh, a little baby is not capable of making acts of love, truly speaking, but a little baby has great needs. And you can think about a mother and her little baby and how a mother really can love in a way that the baby cannot. Right. So with that, then we can think about God. God has no need for us and loves us. And that we then can consider how God's love is just so amazing because he has absolutely no need for us and everything that is good comes from him. So this is where just the radical difference that God doesn't need us and God does not uh, gain anything from our love for him, but that he really does love us and he wants us to love us in return. Okay, so... 
maybe pursuing that insight a little further, uh, when you're talking about redemption or recreation, it seems that the logic of it is premised on the logic of uh, creation. And when describing creation, we have, you know, within the Thomistic kind of thought world or within St. Thomas's own writings, resources for describing God as the efficient cause and the final cause and the exemplar cause of creation. Do you have, like when you give a popular talk, like in the setting of an RCIA class or something like that, do you, do you have a way that you describe creation so as to break people's association with God serving his needs or addressing his indigence? Just to give an example, one that I like to use is God had a secret too good to keep, the secret of his divine life, and so he shares it in creation. But I realize that makes it sound like God can't keep a secret. <laughs> or like the divine life was so rich, so fecund, that it spills over the bounds of you know God himself. But then that makes it sound like he didn't choose it. Um, so whenever you use analogies, they're going to have problems. But do you have go-to images that you like to use for these purposes? Well, it goes back to who God is, and God is love. And it's from his utter generosity that anything outside of God exists, so that uh, that because of God's utter generosity of, of the one who is love, that then there are things outside of God. And then to see how God cares for us so much that when we strayed from him, that uh, the Father sent his own Son for our salvation. I like to go to St. Catherine of Siena's image of God as the mad lover, the crazy lover, and how from her point of view that God is just crazy. It, it, it wouldn't make sense on a human level. And that's where um, also to go back to human loves, sometimes people in love do things that might not make sense on a natural point of view, um, but from the lover's point of view, uh, that's right. Well, then to see again how God has a God's eye perspective on all things and how he, uh, and how he thinks that uh, the blood of Jesus is, is worth our love. Hmm. Yeah, I have, yeah, maybe I'll get to this later. Discipline your discourse, Father Gregory. Okay, here we go. So um, then let's talk a little bit about causes and motivations. Um, you address this a little bit because there's this old medieval debate as to whether or not the Lord Jesus Christ would have taken human flesh had we not sinned. Um, and that's that, that doesn't feature as much in your presentation so much as trying to disambiguate this notion of God's recreative acts, you know, like, or God's, the incarnation being somehow caused or constrained or forced versus this more traditional language of, of motives or um, you know, as, as somehow distinct. Can you speak a little bit to God's freedom in redemption? Sure. So God is always free. Nothing necessitates God's uh, action toward us. Uh, God does things because of who he is. And so this is a radical disjunct between our way of acting and God's way of acting. Father John Mark Ebo Alessi, who is a friar of the Dominican province of St. Joseph the Worker in Nigeria, did a wonderful dissertation at our Pontifical Faculty of the Dominican House of Studies precisely on God's charity as seen at the cross. And he makes a really good point about how with these debates concerning motives for the incarnation, sometimes people don't go back to the fullness of St. Thomas's teaching, and that fullness goes back to who God is and what God does. God does things because of who he is, not because of 
of things outside of him propelling him to do things. So this is where the, the primary motive of any act of God is really who God is. Okay, then once you see that from the divine point of view, then how St. Thomas gives a subtle argument about a motive for the incarnation from our end, and that is that when he reads sacred scripture, St. Thomas sees that the reason for the incarnation is on account of sin, particularly original sin. Um, but that should always be seen from the prior stance of how God acts because of who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in your, in your talk, you described how that verse, John 3.16, is central to St. Thomas's understanding of the divine you know, motivation, as it were. Uh, and I'm thinking, too, what you're saying in quoting Father John Mark's work. I'm thinking of some of the replies to the objections, I want to say, in Tertia Parr's Question 1, Article 2, where he quotes St. John Damascene about the divine nature and attributes, that there's a more basic or fundamental sense in which the redemption is a manifestation, communication of just the divine life, simply so-called. And that comes through in some of the argumentation of the body of that particular article. And insofar as you adverted to, yeah, that question one, article two, where St. Thomas distinguishes between some reasons, you know, or motives, as it were, that, that promote us in the good, and then some motives or reasons which withdraw us from evil. Maybe we could turn then to this notion of promotion in the good, because I know it's very near and dear to your heart, the theme of divinization, which kind of concludes that first sequence of five. But he gets at it by way of the theological virtues, talking about how it increases our faith and how it shores up our hope and how it excites our charity and then how it gives us a model. Um, Can you maybe speak a little bit to the connection that exists between the theological virtues and the divinization that's at work in our Lord's incarnation and just his his redemptive life? Sure. So this is where, from St. Thomas's sapiential view, uh, he doesn't have necessarily uh, separation between things that in the academy, it's like, oh, we don't study this because this is the course on the theological virtues. It's not on the course on Christ. Well, uh, that, uh, that wouldn't make sense to St. Thomas. So precisely in studying God and in the third part of the Summa about Christ, who, uh, who, uh, who is the Son of God made man and is then our way back to God, he sees that in the incarnation, we then are filled with this grace. So grace itself is a participation in the grace of Christ's own soul. So Christ uh, is filling us uh, with his own grace. And then uh, with the gift of grace, we have the theological virtues infused in us. So faith, hope, and charity. And of course, charity is tops. So the, the talk in particular was focused on on uh, on love in the incarnation of God. So I really wanted people to see that precisely because of the incarnation, God is giving us this gift of love. And then to to continue, uh, because everybody everybody wants love. Okay, everybody wants love. And then to see how we can find the greatest love in Jesus. Okay, I think this is. A good moment maybe to interpose an image of St. Therese, and I'm going to summarize it, and in summarizing it, I might actually introduce some of my own interpretation because I haven't read it in a few years, so my apologies if I do. Um, You are more textually honest than I am. Um, So she has this image where she imagines a doctor 
who is also a father, so a father physician, and he sees his child coming along down the way, and he sees a stumbling block in his child's path, and he knows that his child, for whatever reason, is going to stumble over that stumbling block. So then he has a choice. He can either permit the child to stumble and then patch the child up, or he can remove the stumbling block. In the first case, the child will be hurt and then immediately know the father's love and solicitude, but then come to reason subsequently, wait a second, couldn't you have removed that stumbling block? And there might be some confusion that follows. On the other hand, if the stone is removed, then the child will pass on unscathed, but not necessarily know the depth of the, the father's love for him. Um, so, okay, using, using this particular image, it's like you can, you can experience on a human level the anguish of the father physician. Now we have to purify some things in application to God or in you know, thinking beyond the limitations of our human state. But in what ways do you see the incarnation as like, you know, a God who is in a certain sense, like anguished, again, purifying that term of its human limitations to communicate to us the depth of his love. And then how does, how does the incarnation tell this forth? In what ways does the incarnation capture all the richness, but like all the intensity of that divine intent? I think with the incarnation, we really see how God wants to be close to us. So every image that is helpful also isn't perfect because it's an image, a similitude. Uh, God really wants to be very, very close to us. And there's nothing closer than looking at what we call the hypostatic union, that the word was made flesh. And so this is where in Jesus himself, we see that God and man are together as one. And that God wants us to be in his son so that he wants us uh, to be members of Christ, uh, uh, filled with his spirit, uh, so that way we may cry out, Abba, Father, that we may address the Father as Jesus addresses his Father. And then to see how uh, in the midst of this life, because of the fallen condition of this world, that there is suffering and that there is no such thing as love here on this earth without some sort of suffering involved because of the way things are in this fallen world. And then how uh, sin put Jesus to death and for us to see that God wins the victory in the cross and the resurrection and that, that God not only wins the victory, he, he allows us to win the victory in him. Because again, it's because of the incarnation that the one who suffered, died, and rose for us is the eternal son of God made man. And so it is our victory because it's Jesus who does this. Um, beautiful. I have many thoughts. <laughs> um, so you're... Uh, an expert in patristic theology and the thought of St. Gregory Nazianzus, the thought of St. Augustine and others besides. Um, I've heard it said that there's a, an early, a kind of patristic notion that the ends of the incarnation are kind of already accomplished in Christ's flesh, like at a, at the level of his being. And then some people will say that it's a more kind of later medieval notion that, that focuses on our Lord's doing and specifically on the doing of the passion. Um, it seems, you know, 
my reading of St. Thomas's account is that you have really rich notions of both being and doing, and it's by the doing that one comes to enjoy the being. And I think, you know, divinization is one clear way in which such a vision is told forth. But maybe, maybe could you speak a little bit to the implications of this vision of the hypostatic union? Like, what then is added by our Lord's doing, by his, you know, being conceived, by his being born, by his being lost to his parents at the age of 12, and then his public ministry and all that comes with that and follows thereupon? What does that add to our understanding of God and our appropriation of his salvation? Great. Right. So, uh, backing up concerning being and doing, uh, uh, being is the most general form of doing. Uh, there are all sorts of things of doing, like sufferings and actions, uh, and and all of them are kinds of being too. So this is where to go back to the incarnation. That from the first moment of that conception, uh, you have God in flesh, and that you have, in a sense, a reconciliation, a reconciliation of all things in Christ from that very beginning, and that uh, St. Thomas helps us understand how from the very beginning then, uh, because of the uniqueness of that particular human nature, which the Son of God assumed uh, had the abilities uh, to make acts of, of thinking and willing. And so this is where uh, that Jesus is special and that he, from that first moment, then, is uh, meriting for us. Uh, he's showing us the way to glorify the Father, okay? So that there are basically two things that are two sides of, the, of one coin, the glorification of God and the sanctification of man, and how Jesus, from the very beginning, is showing us that kind of life that God wants in creation. And then, uh, because of who he is, and because of what has happened on this earth, uh, that you then see the son's faithfulness, his obedience in charity to the father all through his life. And so then there are these manifestations. And so you can think about the mysteries of the life of Christ as, as, as both uh, showing and effecting the salvation that God wants for us. And this culminates in the cross, uh, so the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, uh, because there's something very terrible about death. Uh, St. Paul says in the first letter to Corinthians that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this is where uh, that there is this, um, that you need, that we need the life, the full life of Christ, uh, because this life is not just simply a presence, but, but this is an action, and that this action then is winning our salvation, and that, uh, that it's really in the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus that we then can, uh, can see how God's will is fulfilled, and that by the Spirit given to us, we then can hope to uh, ascend with the Son back to the Father. Um, okay, so I want to make reference to the, I don't know, mundane experience of a listener who is animated by, inspired by the descriptions of divine love, especially as those 
well, especially as that divine love is transposed through the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, such that we can read it off in a, in a human register that's closer to us, you know, that's perhaps easier for us to assimilate. At the very least, it's humaner, <laughs> or at least it's, it's humaner in a way that's natural to us. Um, and then the experience of, of human love in other situations, right, uh, with our friends, our family, and things like that. Trying to sort out amongst the intuitions of, okay, this is the type of love that I like to receive, and this is the type of love that I don't like to receive. And it might be that, you know, I prefer some loves to the other because they're easier or they're more comfortable or they're whatever it is, you know. Uh, but, but there are other loves where there's something about them that's maybe disingenuous or inorganic that I don't like. So it's like when I, when I feel myself to be the object of another's charity as like a conscious or deliberate effort, sometimes that makes, you know, that, that might make an individual feel strange or conflicted or confused. It's like, oh, I, bummer, you know, here I was thinking I was delightful and it turns out that I am a heavy burden to bear. Um, but but it's in, in, in describing the Lord's love for us, you describe it as a love that dignifies, you describe it as a love that elevates, right, that deifies, that draws us into the divine life. So maybe if you could just say a word apropos of those observations, how it is that our Lord's love doesn't make us feel patronized or condescended to in the negative sense, but even in his condescension, the abbreviation of the word, he manages to draw us up into the divine life in a way that, that elevates, that, that transforms. Okay, thanks for the question. I would like to emphasize at the beginning that we beg for mercy. Yeah. And mercy's for the miserable. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm miserable, and I say, Lord, have mercy. Uh, Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Uh, I'm miserable, okay? So I need God's help. Oh, God, come to my assistance. And I think it, I just want to, to affirm that, uh, that I am miserable, and that I really want God uh, to help me. All right. So now after that, uh, the amazing thing is that Jesus on the night before he dies says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. And this is where in divine charity that uh, God um, doesn't treat us like rocks. He treats us as persons made to his image and likeness, and that uh, God gets down to our level. We were made from dust, uh, but, uh, but now we are saved by one who is like us in all things except sin. And this is where then to think about how Jesus allows us to see that we have a much greater dignity than what we could even imagine here in this world. That, uh, that God wants to raise us up to be sharers of his divine nature, and that we do this uh, because of, of who God is and of how uh, uh, we are his, uh, that, that, he, that he, he's claimed us and, and he will take care of things. So in, in mentioning that, okay, this, this is what I have in mind. I'm thinking of the Prima Secunda and St. Thomas' description of love. I think it's like maybe three questions that he has dedicated to love. And he talks about the causes of love and he talks about the effects of love. You adverted to some of the effects of love in your description when talking about God going out and this notion of ecstasy and um, God dwelling with and drawing us into union with, with like a kind of mutual indwelling. Uh, but it also strikes me that, that 
the causes of love are a very important piece of understanding the effects of love because, you know, St. Thomas will say, similitude, it has to be like unto me in some way. Goodness, I have to recognize it as something appetible. And then he'll say further that it's, what is the third? No, knowledge. I have to know it in order to be, be inclined thereunto. But this idea that um, there, there's already a similitude, there's already a kind of likeness upon which the lover capitalizes to speak in crass terms. But it's like, I can't love something wholly foreign, wholly alien. So there's, there's, a, there's a union there, obviously, because insofar as God gives us to be, he gives us to act. God is more present to us than we are to ourselves, um, et cetera. But that God, he, it's almost like he elaborates that union or that he, he h- how exactly would one describe it? Because you can't say that the incarnation adds anything to God. And yet in our you know, recognition and reception of God, we, we see it to be what it is, which is this act of condescension, this effort on the part of God. Again, effort's the wrong word. Clarify your speech, Father Gregory. This uh, manifestation and communication of divine life such that, we can, such that we can better recognize it and receive it. And then it deepens the union on our end. It makes the union yet more profound. Um, can you say something about that? Because a lot of times we think about love as like overcoming difference, like bridging, get, which is true enough. But I think we make too hard of a, of a, I don't know, a distinction between or a division even between the lovers. Can, can you say a word about that? Okay. So there's a lot there, Father Gregory. Uh, a word about which part again? <laughs> um, so union at the root of love, but yes. union also being kind of redoubled by love and okay. God giving yes. expression to this in the incarnation. Great. So St. Thomas loves this Dionysian idea that love is a unitive force. And that the lover gets out of himself into the beloved. And so this is where you have this sort of principle, and then you look at the incarnation. Oh, and go back to St. Catherine of Siena as God is the mad lover, the crazy lover. Wow. All right, so so God, uh, who doesn't change, okay, the unchanging God of love, so radically changes something of creation that we call this the hypostatic union. That, uh, that a particular human nature uh, is, has been assumed by the eternal Son of God, and that then that one, Jesus Christ our Lord, is making manifest the Father, okay? It, and that, that one is breathing forth love, is giving us the Holy Spirit. And uh, Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us, that, um, that God wants to be in us, Okay, so, so you think about not only nature, that we're made to the image and likeness of God, but now that this nature is kapax dei, capable of God, capable for deification, that then there's this life of grace. And that the life of grace is precisely to be a union, okay? And that this is striving after God so that there actually is um, uh, not... God doesn't set limits during this life on earth in charity, that God wants us to grow and grow and grow in a life of grace so that we can be more and more like him, all right? So that there's something limitless from our end where during this life on earth, by God's grace, we can become more and more like him, closer and closer to him, and then that prepares us for the utter glory of God in heaven, where the union is so wonderful that there's absolutely nothing that gets between us and God. Uh, not No similitude whatsoever, but that we are united to God in that vision of the divine essence. 
and and then how it's it is a matter of charity. So to go back to love, and St. Thomas talks about how the saints in heaven who have the best view of God are those found with the most love. Okay, so that love really does give you insight. And and so this is where just uh you know that that beautiful uh image from the Song of Songs about uh about not letting go. Okay, so comprehending in the sense of of, of the of the grasping that that uh, uh, that the Lord has ha, will not let go of us, and we will not let go of Him. Hmm. Okay, um, maybe for just a, a final segment, a last question or two. Uh, I'm thinking about the practical applications of this, which I know you like to turn to practical applications, both as a mnemonic device because those speculative truths with translate kind of more existentially often have a way of lodging in our hearts, but also because, you know, the mystic is the most practical of men in the sense that all of this translates into our love of God. Um, so um, I'm thinking here specifically of the human experience of distance in relationships. So a lot of people experience God as a kind of distant God, a deus absconditus, and but a lot of people experience this among friends and family. It's like, oh, there's abiding misunderstanding or, oh, you know, like I, I wish I could be more generous, but every time I attempt to be generous, it's like I, I muff it. Like I say like, oh no, have this flavor of ice cream because, you know, I, I prefer it. So I assume you prefer it, but it turns out you prefer the one that, that I don't. And if we had just been honest, we, ah, you know, it's like many people experience this kind of conflict in very regularly recurring and infinitely frustrating ways. And the way that you describe the love of God for us as kind of like overcoming this distance and reconciling us, um, you know, traversing the alienation that we had experienced through sin or that we had perpetrated through sin so as to bring us deep into the Trinitarian communion is a very beautiful vision. So kind of in, in practical terms, um, what are ways in which people can adopt their, their contemplative life to this vision? And that's a life of study, a life of prayer, a life of, of daily bread. What are some ways in which you think this translates into our, uh, our human practice? I want to go back to that daily bread, particularly the Eucharist. So this is where the sacraments are instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church precisely for our salvation. So where do we experience God's love the most? I'd say in the sacramental life. And to go back to the importance of the first sacrament, baptism, and to realize that by baptism, uh, we are marked with an indelible character that we've been claimed for God. And then that uh, in baptism, of course, uh, all sin is forgiven, all, uh, all punishment is, is done away with. And then how baptism then really sets, clears the stage uh, for our life and how we have the sacrament of reconciliation uh, and all the different sacraments to help us understand the, the intent of God for our life to know his closeness. And of all the sacraments, the Eucharist is tops, so the daily bread, and then to see how God wants us to be fed, okay? So we can have all sorts of problems about flavors of ice creams and uh, what uh, people really want, um, that in the daily bread, in the Holy Eucharist, you know, you have given them bread from heaven, having all sweetness within it. And then for us to be able to see how this is true, and uh, if we don't experience the fullness of the truth, then to talk with God about that and to adore him in his hiddenness. Because there's something about the Eucharist that is 
terribly hidden. And then that draws us more and more to God by his grace. So that's where uh, uh, frequenting the sacraments, uh, particularly uh, going to Mass, receiving Holy Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist, uh, adoring our Lord, uh, and then seeing how uh, it's the fullness of the day that that there's actually when you have a robust sense of the sacramental life that then you see that it's the whole Christian life. It's not just simply particular events, but these particular events. So I uh, have received uh, uh, all three sacraments that confer indelible characters. So baptism, confirmation, holy orders, and with holy orders, the grade of the diaconate and the grade of the priesthood. And then how uh, whatever uh, I do for the rest of my life here on earth and for all eternity, I've been marked in those ways. And those are marks of love. Okay, so that's where you're always to go back to who God is. He's love. And then how does, what does he want? Well, he, he loves. And how has he marked us? He's marked us with love. So, so I think going back to our, our identity uh, and then to see how the sacraments especially will, um, will help us, not just simply when we go to church, but, but the fullness of life, you know, everything. Because, because we're meant to, to be lovers. Yeah. And our, our weight is our love. Okay, so <laughs> one, one final thought then. Um, I'm thinking about what we read, you know, apropos of St. Paul, and then St. Augustine elaborates on this idea that when you eat the Eucharist, there's a kind of reverse digestion that goes on. That's a little bit crass, but, you know, in the ordinary course, when we eat something, it becomes us, you know, it becomes fat cells, or it becomes energy, it becomes work. Uh, whereas when we eat the Eucharist, we become him, uh, insofar as we are made yet more perfectly members of the body of Christ. Uh, we're assimilated to the Godhead through this working of the sacred humanity and the sacramental dispensation. We're, we're made yet more perfectly conformed to Christ who is head, we who are members to constitute the one worshiping Christ. Um, can you just elaborate a little bit as, a little bit on this, this vision of, yeah, like assimilation and conformity and like how it is, how it is that love draws us into him in this sacramental life? Just a further word about that. Great. Okay. So, uh, so I do love that image from St. Augustine's Confessions, Book 7, about uh, how God himself is the food uh, that allows us to be transformed into him. So you said, re is it reverse digestion, what did you say? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so reverse <laughs> digestion. And, uh, and so that, that's a, a striking image that is true. And then to consider how uh, God is unchanging and he wants us to change. So this is where in his love, his, that God is a consuming fire and that uh, he wants us to be consumed by his love. Uh, and uh, at times this can be very painful, okay, because there are things in our life that need to be burnt up, okay? So anything that is opposed to God, anything that is opposed to love. Uh, and then so there is this purification and you consider the doctrine of purgatory, and how the tradition speaks of a sort of fire in purgatory. Um, because, because in order to enter into the presence of God, we need to be purified. Okay, and, and how during this life on earth, this life is meant to be a sort of purification to be able to stand 
in the presence of God, to be united in the presence of God forever. That here during this life on earth, all sorts of people, um, you know, uh, we don't see God. Uh, and we can even be, uh, we can even de deny his existence. Uh, but in the sacramental life, then, for us to be purified and to be transformed more and more and to know God's closeness. So if I can give a plug uh, to a book that came out in May, I wrote a book called The Power of Patristic Preaching, The Word in Our Flesh. And that subtitle is, again, The Word in Our Flesh. It's actually not referring to Jesus because St. Augustine says that Jesus is the word made flesh. The word in our flesh is for the prophets, the holy ones, because again, the word is to be dwelling in us. So for us then to, to see how the early church, in fact, all the saints, communicate something of the closeness of God that is so outstanding that, uh, that the word is to be living in our lives, okay? That, that we're in Christ and Christ is in us. And, and not, to, not to forget that. Amen. <laughs> um, if I might impose upon you to give a further plug, would you say a word about the doctoral program at the Dominican House of Studies um, yeah, before we wrap up the episode? Because you made mention of one student, uh, Father John Mark, and then I know that you, you currently have another student or two, but I don't know that many people know about the doctoral program, so I think we, they, would, they would benefit from hearing. Thanks, Father Gregory. So the Pontifical Faculty of the Mac Conception at the Dominican House of Studies has various degree programs. Within our ecclesiastical or pontifical programs, we have the Bachelor's of Sacred Theology, the License of Sacred Theology, and the Doctorate of Sacred Theology. So the doctoral program is right now only that Doctorate of Sacred Theology, but we do hope to have the PhD in Theology to Mystic Studies. So it's a small program, and you can find more information online if you go to dhs.edu, uh, or you could email me, since I'm the director of the doctor program, and look at the uh, prerequisites and to see how uh, you may be interested in, in considering more for this doctoral program. Wonderful. Yeah, where I define myself in another walk of life um, and not, you know, sent through the first two cycles at the House of Studies and then the third cycle at the University of Freeburg, I would be drawn. <laughs> so th thanks so much, Father Andrew, for taking the time. And thanks so much for your, your patience and, and care and the answers that you formulated. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Father Gregory. All right. My joy. Turning then to you, the listener. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Off Campus Conversations. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the Thomistic Institute podcast, whether on YouTube or on your podcast app. Or if you know of another way to subscribe, I suppose you could do that, too. I don't. So I could stand to be enlightened on that fact. Um, and other than that, we've got cool Thomistic Institute events coming your way for the upcoming semester here. So look for the Thomistic Institute mailings to see whether or not you'll have things on a campus near you or uh, broadly associated with the TI at various city centers throughout the U.S. and the British Isles and increasingly so beyond. So that's all we have. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast.